This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're going to begin with how a run-in with Harvey Weinstein changed a Colorado woman's life. In the summer of 1984, Tommy Ann Roberts was living in New York City. She was 20, pursuing an acting career and waiting tables. Weinstein ate at her restaurant. He offered her a movie audition. She showed up later at his apartment to find the film producer in his bathtub. Well, today, Roberts is a psychology professor at Colorado College, and she studies sexual objectification, and she is with us from Colorado Springs. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You went to Weinstein's apartment with the expectation that other people would be there. And you say you were Indeed. Fr- and frozen in terror you were when you saw what was waiting for you. Well, I was, you know, I mean... It's hard when you're 20 years old and you are confronted with a situation like that. I certainly, I the only way I thought I could get out, of course, was to sort of sweet talk my way out, to blame my own self, to say something like, maybe I'm not cut out for this kind of thing. Uh, maybe I'm uh, a bit too prudish, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it, it doesn't occur to you in a situation like that, that you can just kind of scramble or that, you know, you, you think back on it and you think, man, I should have told that person what for. Mm. Uh, he asked you to take your top off. You did mm-hmm. not. Uh, I think at one point you might have uttered the word sorry to him. Uh, I think you, I did. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, it, when the New York Times piece came out, um, by Jody Cantor some weeks ago, I was meant to be grading exams in my office. And here I see this piece and I, I was motivated to write her an email. I thought, surely she won't read this email. It started with, I'm not an actress. I don't work for the Weinstein brothers. I am a 54-year-old college professor, but this happened to me. And I think... What was so uncanny, I guess, for me was as these stories were coming forward, they were just so alike, mm. right? And and I think Jody said to me something like, I had the dubious honor of being one of the earliest stories they had heard. So clearly, Mr. Weinstein developed an MO um, that involved bathrobes and bathing and these kinds of things. And, and almost to a person, every one of the women who has spoken of their experience say that at some point he says, will you at least take your top off? And yeah, uh, How open... he explained to me. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. He explained to me at the time, of course, that surely there would be, uh, you know, some nudity scenes in the movie. And if I wasn't comfortable um, with nudity in front of him, how would I ever be in front of the camera? Uh, and that's probably when I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was his tool of manipulation. I, I wonder mm-hmm. if you yeah. sometimes think of... Of the women who didn't feel they could walk away or say no, maybe who felt that they had too much on the line financially to to refuse him. Absolutely. In fact, I've been sorrowful over the past couple of weeks as this story has unfolded that we haven't heard from more of those women. Um, And it speaks to me of of a greater cultural shame. I want to say that I don't think of myself as any kind of hero for having gotten out of there. It's just that the stakes weren't as high for me. You know, I I had my senior year of college still to do. I had been considering either a theater major or a psychology major. And, uh, you know, I had I had a life to walk back to. And I think that I would like to hear a little bit more 
from women who didn't feel as though they had a choice, who felt like this was the only commodity they had to to trade in, and that given Hollywood's uh, preoccupation with women's sexualized appearance, this was what they needed to do to get what they were so hoping to get. I understand that because of what happened, this really tipped you towards psychology and away from acting. Uh, One of your research interests is what the effects are on girls and women of being sexually objectified. How much of that focus do you think relates to that experience in the 80s? Yeah. You know, it's funny because that email that I sent to Jody Cantor allowed me maybe for the first time to really sort of draw the narrative arc. And it's it's not, as I said to a Denver Post reporter, it's not probably a solid line, rather a dotted one. But mm. for, for sure, for sure, um, these kinds of experiences added up for me. I had I had certainly more seemingly benign experiences throughout my graduate years um, and in my early career where, you know, I'd be in the middle of some kind of a presentation or a teaching effort or a discussion about my scholarly work and, and receive a comment that was about my appearance, you know. And I found those comments so derailing and I began to sort of draw a line and and across all of these experiences and consider the fact that certainly we know that there are um, atrocious and extreme ends of the sexual objectification of girls and women, trafficking, rape, um, even sexually motivated murder. But on this more seemingly benign end of the continuum exist a whole range of things, right? (laughs) Somebody appearing in a bathtub in front of you, somebody asking you just for a massage, somebody even commenting blithely on your appearance instead of on your competence in a situation like at work, for example. And I began to think, I want to look at what, um, what it's like to grow up female in a culture where you're aware of this continuum, where you're constantly exposed to it. And you, you as a sat, psychologist, yeah, yeah you, you I, sat, I find that fascinating. Indeed. And you sat on the American Psychological Association's task force on the sexualization of girls. How, how early does that begin in girls' lives? Oh, gosh. Right. So young. And we see increasingly evidence. Part of our task force's charge was to look at whether or not this was a treatment that was occurring at younger and younger ages. And we concluded that, indeed, yes. Um, we now have... We now have gender reveal parties for pregnant women where we begin already not only to um, to think about girls as belonging in pink and frilly and, and things like this, but also as princesses. And so before the girl child is even born, I think we're sort of putting them on a conveyor belt that says that their appearance is the most important thing about them, that they look pretty. Um, and that commentary on their appearance is going to be a regular part of their life, that that's going to be what they're going to seek in terms of praise and, and so on. And so I think what ends up happening there is a kind of a, a sort of proactive internalization of that perspective on yourself so that you can anticipate that treatment, right? You You know that... If you dress this way and if you do your hair this way and if you keep checking in mirrors, you're going to be in a better position to know whether or not you're fulfilling those cultural standards of 
sexy, sexy appearance. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Tomi Ann Roberts, who's a psychology professor at Colorado College. She's also one of many women who've come forward recently with stories of sexual harassment and abuse by film producer Harvey Weinstein. And she's told us that that event in 1984 uh, is at least partly responsible for the psychology career she has pursued and her research interests. Uh, the Me Too movement has sprung up in the wake of these revelations. Uh, this is the hashtag on social media in which women say, Me Too, I've had this experience myself. Uh, it's been used over 1.7 million times in 85 countries. W- what do you make of Me Too? Uh, has it been comforting to some regard? I'm so glad you asked that. I I have to confess that I had an, initially a sort of mixed reaction um, to that campaign until I started to consider these sort of sheer numbers speak to a, an almost mundane, ordinary quality um, to these experiences. And I think shining a light on that is exactly what I hoped to be able to do by speaking out. And that is to say, I was not traumatized in 1984. I, I was certainly terrified in the moment, but I got out of there and and I don't feel traumatized now. But I look back and I think, well, why wasn't I? Why did I think that that was just sort of an ordinary thing that I ought to have expected should have happened? And so the power of this Me Too hashtag, I think, is a power of sort of calling out the everyday quality of these continua of experiences for girls and women. And I've been very moved by it. Is it possible that after this story has emerged and this conversation has started, that the pendulum, though, might swing too far in the opposite direction, that that men and women perhaps become, in, in the workplace or something like that, become terrified to interact uh, because mm-hmm. someone is so afraid of making a mistake or saying the wrong thing? Yeah, I I don't buy that. <laughs> I really don't. I think it's... I. I think, um, as Zerlina Maxwell, uh, with whom I appeared on a PBS program called Third Rail, said, to, to sexually harass or to even make a comment on a woman's appearance is a choice. And we can make better choices, and we can teach our sons and the men in our lives to make better choices. We all know that it feels wonderful to be complimented by people who are close to you, people who you've spent time with outside of a work context. And I just think that it's not hard to leave those kinds of comments at the door when we recognize that we're in a professional setting. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess I guess the other thing I would, I would point out is that um, it, to me, to me, the issue is why are we insulting men? by assuming that they cannot control these kinds of behaviors. I really want to think a little bit more about that. Uh, Say more about that. So the idea that uh, men in this have been cast as somewhat incorrigible. Is is that what you're saying? Correct. Uh I, I think that that's an odd thing that we've all sort of tacitly agreed to, right? That the management of this issue is on um, girls and women's side because some, you know, I mean, we always hear boys can't help it and this sort of thing. But it seems to me as though they can. 
and that um, we should maybe take a, a harder look at what we are assuming about boys and men if we imagine that they are not capable of distinguishing between uh, competence-relevant settings, uh, achievement-relevant settings, and the interactions that we engage in between the genders in those settings versus intimate settings, settings with friends, settings with lovers, settings that are more romantic. Before we go, um, would you, if you could, like to have any face-to-face time with Harvey Weinstein? And if so, what do you think you'd say? Oh, gosh. Wow. I... I don't, I, I don't know if I would. I, I had an opportunity or so I thought some years ago in the late 90s when I happened to see him um, on Cape Cod. But there were so many, by then he had become, and he and his brother so famous that there were a lot of sort of handlers around him. But I had at that time the courage, I wanted to go up to him and say, you did this thing to me. I think... I think what I would want to say is that I don't want anything from him directly, but that I would like him to recognize that he has significantly impacted and in some cases ruined a lot of people's lives. Thanks thanks for being with us. I appreciate your, your candor. Thank you so much for having me. Tomian Roberts is a psychology professor at Colorado College. She's one of many women who have come forward recently with stories of sexual harassment and abuse by film producer Harvey Weinstein. When we come back, a debate. Should Denver mandate green roofs on big new buildings? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Big new buildings in Denver would have to be topped with plants if a ballot initiative in Denver passes. Supporters say green roofs combat rising temperatures in the city, among other benefits. Critics don't disagree, but they say a mandate is the wrong avenue. We're going to debate this now with Ian Thomas Tafoya of the Denver Green Roof Initiative and Katie Kruger of Citizens for a Responsible Denver, which is opposed. She's on the phone, and welcome to you both. Hi. Thanks, Ryan. Initiative 300 would mean new buildings bigger than 25,000 square feet must dedicate some of their roof space to trees, plants. Also, solar panels can be in the mix. Uh, The bigger the building, the more covering required. Existing buildings aren't covered unless they expand to above 25,000 square feet or if they need a new roof. There are some exclusions, I'll say, for smaller apartment buildings and condos. Ian, what's so beneficial about green roofs that you think they should be mandated? Give me your elevator pitch. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Thanks again. It's a pleasure to be here on behalf of I-300, the Green Roof Initiative. I-300 is a citizen-driven ordinance on the ballot this election. The ordinance requires... What would you say are its benefits? uh, You know, obviously, it cleans the water, right? It cleans the air. It reduces the temperature. There's energy savings. It provides habitat for animals. um, And it provides kind of a green space often for people to participate in. But I do want to point out that trees, I think we we combat this a lot. Trees is a very extreme intensive case of green roofs. Uh Most of the examples that you see here in Denver are nothing like that. Uh, They're succulent plants based in four-inch medium. Um, and uh, they clean the water and do all those great things. Based in four-inch media, meaning there's some sort of soil atop a roof. Yes, absolutely. Um, When you think about green roofs, you need to think about kind of how you put on coats, right? These different layers that add up. 
You have this base layer that keeps the water out. You have these layers that help hold in the soil. Then you add the plants. You said obviously this cleans the water. I don't know why that's the case. Um, the reason that it obviously cleans the water is the same reason why we use bioswells or why we have um, these great projects that restore the greenery around rivers because the soil uh, microbes and the plants naturally clean the water. Okay, so water that falls from the sky on top of a building would sort of go through this green roof system. Yeah, saying. it filters down through, eventually ends up in the, wa- in the wastewater stream. And speak briefly to the heat benefits here. Yeah, so uh, the heat island effect, which everyone talks about, is basically you have um, all this concrete that takes in energy from the sun all day, and then it radiates it back out. By uh, not having a black roof and having plants instead in this soil, uh, it lowers the temperature that you would have instead. So critics say the upfront costs would be passed down to renters and would make public projects more expensive. The Denver Post reports the cost to install a rooftop garden could be anywhere from 25 to $35 a square foot. That could add thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to costs. How would this cost affect affordability in Denver, particularly in, in the housing market, which is of such concern these days? Yeah, I think, I think what, we're, what we're failing to see here is a long-term vision. You know, when we're talking about quarterly earning reports, are we talking about 25 years from now? Most of uh, the research that's been done, including by the state of Colorado uh, Energy, um, they show that it pays it back in 6.2 years. Is it the energy office you're saying? Uh, actually, the office that I'm thinking about is uh, PACE, which is the it's an energy tax incentive that gets people to advance their buildings. Okay. And you say then the, the costs can be recuperated if you're looking long term? Yes, absolutely. How, how are the costs recuperated? How uh, do by I energy save savings. Okay. Uh, Katie, your opposition group has the support of numerous businesses, including the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce and the Denver Metro Association of Realtors, of which, by the way, you're CEO. Uh, You're not opposed to green roofs, I understand. You're opposed to the mandate. Why should someone in Denver be concerned about Initiative 300, in your opinion? Well, thanks again for having us, Ryan. We really appreciate the opportunity to speak. And you know, it, it is the mandate issue that we are tripping over the most. It It isn't just a concern for the people in Denver. It's going to be a concern for Coloradans all across the state because it's going to drive up housing costs and push out small businesses. And when you drive up housing costs in the core of our state, those people looking to find more affordable options, whether that be for their own housing or for um, moving their small businesses to someplace more affordable, they are going to start to put pressure on the surrounding municipalities and those surrounding metro areas. And that demand is going to drive up housing costs for everybody in our state. And what about this idea that that costs can be recuperated over the life of a project? So is is your view of cost very short-sighted, do you think? So our builders and developers in Denver, you know, it's an exciting and tenacious market and everybody kind of wants to be here and we want to keep it that way. They're always contending with kind of labor shortages and rising material costs. And they're very good at finding any kind of natural cost savings measures. And so we believe that if these um, kind of energy efficiency uses and um, green retrofitting pieces were actually going to improve their budgets, 
they would already be doing it. I see. What do, what do you say to that, Ian? The idea that if there's such a savings to be had, builders would be doing this of their own volition. Well, I, what I would say is that builders, again, are trying to maximize their profits. And it's funny that we have the CEO talking to us about affordable housing. Uh, the linkage fee in Denver, which is the backbone and the crux of the funding for all affordable housing in our communities, was opposed by this CEO and by their office. Um the energy savings, Energize Denver, which the Denver uh, Office of Sustainability has been touting, they also opposed. We think it pairs well with tax credits that are already being offered by the state of Colorado. And it's funny, right before your show, I heard that the housing public housing authority in Aurora was talking about a solar garden they were turning on and the energy savings that they were about to receive. Uh, so I'd like to say that on, on your side, the D- Denver Green Roof Initiative is backed by environmental advocates and some developers like Zeppelin mm-hmm. and Peak One. Zeppelin has a huge project right now in Denver's Rhino neighborhood. Cities like Toronto, Washington, D.C., San Francisco have all implemented green roof ordinances with some success. Uh, Katie, what, what do you say when you look at other communities that have greener roofs than Denver and whether this is a city lagging behind? Well, first, Ryan, I think I'd like to just mention that we've been a part of the collaborative process of putting in place that mandate for Energize Denver, and we're really proud of the stakeholder outreach that occurred there and Denver is now, and for the voters, that's um, requiring all Denver property owners to list their Energy Star rating of their building um, for public view. And that's something that we believe naturally drives the market. Um, so that's very positive. And um, we were at the table for those conversations. And we have almost 100% compliance of that initiative, of that mandate in Denver except there is one kind of major well-known outlying developer, and that is Zeppelin Development. And they are endorsing this new green roof initiative and mandate, all the while not participating in this kind of basic mandate of being transparent. So, and we're aware of San Francisco. You know, San Francisco is known to be one of the least affordable markets in the country. They are you know, 63% more expensive for small businesses to find office space there. And about 135% more expensive when you're seeking, you know, a condo or an apartment in those markets. And so most Coloradans would agree we don't want to be San Francisco here. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're debating Initiative 300 on Denver's ballot. This has to do with green roofs and mandating them. Ian, go ahead. Well, I, I, I just want to respond to what she had to say about um, being collaborative in the process. I mean, I, I read your website where you said you absolutely oppose Energize Denver and the linkage fee. But beyond that, I don't think we're anywhere close to 100% compliance. We're about 72%, and we're not even fully into it. And we had to mandate it, just like the building code, right? Because these developers and these buildings are moving us towards that. And to say that this one piece of technology, which uh, takes a look and takes a hack at eight of the 12 sustainability goals is going to drive up rents and all these other things, just like San Francisco, there's a whole lot of other things in play in the market than just one rooftop technology. Uh, just to note, you mentioned earlier our newscast item on a housing authority that's starting a solar garden. It's actually in Denver, not a Oh, it's in just, Denver. Yeah, just Great. to make, uh, clear that. 
Um, so why why go the initiative route, Ian? Why not do this through, say, city council and that sort of legislative path? Well, I mean, I think we, we really have tried. Um, going all the way back to 2008 Green Roof Initiative, um, the Green Roof advocates came together with then Mayor Hicken, uh, Hickenlooper's administration, and we even produced documents that really pushed us forward. And you can see it implemented on city, city, several city buildings, including the Justice Center. Um, about a year ago, we came to the city and we asked them. And they turned us away. The Office of Sustainability, the building department, they said, right now, we're just not in a position to take that. Well, if you look at what else is happening in the world with climate change, and you look at the auditor's report, which eviscerated the Office of Sustainability for not making any meaningful progress, we looked at it and said, we know leaders don't like being told what to do, but we can't sit on our hands anymore. And we did something that no one ever did before. And that was gather uh, 8,000 signatures and turn them in with 60 unpaid volunteers. And we're told by the clerk and recorder, it's never been done before. It's never been done before? The people haven't gathered without 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 a paid petitioner. Ah, okay. We did this all volunteer-based, environmentally group-led. Got it. Denver's mayor, I'll say, is opposed to this mandate, saying that this is not the right time. Katie, what if this measure is approved by voters? Uh, I'll give you that last word. Yeah, you know, we are going to use the resources available to us to kind of back the process up and be collaborative you know, we'd like to bring the stakeholders to the table, including um, the proponents and people like Denver Public Schools who are going to be dealing with now seven, you know, in that case, they would be dealing with seven-figure line items um, that draw them away from, you know, funding good education for our children. And it, so we, we would back the process up and, and start it collaboratively um, the, the Denver way and talk to our city officials and see how we can blunt the blow of this. If it were to go into play even for just a few short months, the negative impacts on Denver's economy will ripple out into the future and out into the surrounding metro areas for a very long time to come. So I have a feeling um, Ian and I will probably talk to each other even more down the road. Uh, That is a fairly dark picture that uh, Katie paints there of uh, DPS having to divert money to green roofs and take it away from education, educating kids. Uh, of the market more generally. Uh, Ian, Respond what, to that? Yeah, very yeah. quickly. And I then mean, what I, happens if this is not approved? What avenue do you take? Well, if, first of all, if we don't win, absolutely, collaborative process. We're not going anyway. We're not going away. I, I really want to tell environmentalists that, you know, whether we need to keep the pedal on the gas, we're almost there. We're pushing our politicians to do the right thing. And now, as far as schools go, again, I think we're, we're losing sight of the fact that there's long-term savings here to the line items. And furthermore, there's a huge difference when you look at a budget that has to do with the amount of money you spend in the classroom and what you do to maintain the buildings. I think they're different, and the bonds that we often pass have to do with infrastructure. And so we're choosing to fund those kind of advancements. The notion of capital construction versus yeah, operating. Yeah, and they're learning classrooms for children. They're great. Thanks for debating this with us. You heard from Ian Thomas Tafoya of the Denver Green Roof Initiative and Katie Kruger from Citizens for a Responsible Denver. And you can read Initiative 300 in full at CPR.org. Still to come, a pioneering Denver broadcaster will be inducted into the Colorado Latino Hall of Fame. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Florence Hernandez-Ramos is a pioneer. She helped create KUVO 89.3 in Denver at a time when it was rare for women or Latinos to be in charge. She also hosted the station's signature show, Canción Mexicana, playing artists like Little Joe y la Familia. Hey. 
The jazz station actually started in her living room in 1983. And tonight, Flo, as she's known, will be inducted into the Colorado Latino Hall of Fame. And Flo, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you very much. From the beginning, you and your co-founders imagined Cuvo as a Hispanic-owned radio station. Why was that so important to you? Well, there's a, there were very few Latino-controlled stations. Uh, there were very few Spanish-language stations. And even though we ended up not being Spanish language, we still fit within the conglomeration of Latino stations. You wanted this at first to be a Spanish language service. Yes, we did, because we assumed that that was the common language. And this was in spite of the fact that all of our meetings were always conducted in Span- in English. In rather. English. Uh, pretty quickly, you had to make a big adjustment, though. Uh, this is back in the early to mid-80s, as you're just starting Cuvo, and... Um, you figured out something important about the Hispanic community here. Can you explain what that was that gave you insight into the language issue? Well, we realized that uh, 85% of the Latinos in uh, this area did not speak Spanish. We had been born in the United States. We had uh, been isolated from the culture for a long time, and so we did not speak Spanish. And we realized that being a public radio station where 10% of your listeners support you, uh, we thought, whoa, if we go with Spanish, we're going to have 10% of 15% of the population. This is not going to work. It so we made the adjustment. No. Oh. What did that tell you more deeply about your own assumptions about the community then? Um, or did that help you understand uh, why or why they did not speak Spanish? It uh, really did help us understand that because we realized that that isolation, that uh, being born in the United States... Uh, sort of insulated us from uh, speaking Spanish. The fact that those of our parents who had migrated here were forbidden from speaking Spanish and so wanted to teach their children English so that they could advance uh, more so than they did was uh, what was impacting us a great deal. Interesting. So what do you know about Kuvo's audience now? Kuvo's audience now, I don't know, because I've not been with the station for a long time. But I do know that the jazz uh, has risen to the top all the time in terms of uh, being supported uh, very broadly. And so it's a very multicultural station. And it is uh, currently merging with Rocky Mountain PBS. So the exposure to the uh, multiculturalness of this area to many people is going to happen in spite of what they they may or may not want. I also read that you tried to do a giveaway on air of a trip to Mexico early on, and then you figured out that wasn't really what the audience wanted. Do you remember that? Yes, uh-huh. uh, because at that time we were still um, uh, thinking in our minds that we were going to have a Spanish language station, yeah. so we did a giveaway. Uh, and what we realized was that most of the people that did speak Spanish uh, did not want a return trip to, to Mexico. Mexico. <laughs> so <laughs> we then started looking at the reality of the situation and what we needed to give that was more attractive to our audiences. No, we do have some sound from your first broadcast in August 1985. 
the sound quality isn't great. We got this off of a cassette tape <laughs> flow. Which you're lucky didn't break. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, this is a little music and then uh, some of your introduction. Welcome to KUVO 89.3 FM. I'm Florence Hernandez-Ramos, President and General Manager of KUVO, a 26,000-watt stereo FM station with a 24-hour license and a signal that reaches as far as Fort Collins, carrying the most innovative, culturally unique programming that the Denver metro area will probably ever see. We'll probably ever see <laughs> quite the promise. Do you, do you remember saying that? Uh, no, I don't. In fact, I, I don't even remember having said any of that. And you could tell that I was really tired because getting ready to launch a station is is very energy sapping. So I was really tired. Um, hopefully, I developed more of a of an on air personality after that. But uh, yeah, no, I don't remember saying that. But yeah. I do think that we lived up to that promise. Uh, I have to say that I would shudder to listen to my first broadcast, so I admire you for doing so. Well, actually, it wasn't my idea. It was yours, so... That's true. Um, These stories about your own miscalculations and stereotypes about uh, other people make me wonder if, if you think the Latino community in Colorado or Denver is misunderstood in some regards right now? Oh, very much so, uh, because I think they have some of the same stereotypes that we had, which is that the Latino community is a homogenous community, that there are no differences between a Latino from uh, Colorado to that of a Latino from Miami, Florida. Hmm. And there really are, you know, both linguistically, culturally, uh, you know, even in terms of what we eat, it's very different. So you really have to know your markets. I want to ask you about stereotypes in relation to a decision you made early on. So just for for some background here, you retired as general manager of KOVO in 2006 after 23 years. And for the first 20, I understand you required your staff to dress up for work. And you, you changed that policy, allowed people to wear jeans. Why was the dress code so important to you? Was, was that about your employees perhaps being stereotyped? Well, it was that Latinos uh, always had to prove themselves. And so we, or I felt that the way you presented yourself was the way that people were going to react and treat you. So it was very important to me that people look their best, that they do their best, uh, and so that others would relate to them in a professional manner, as opposed to saying, oh, look, here's a guy off the street trying to run a radio station. It it didn't work. So, yeah, it was very important to me, presentation. And was it a big decision for you to say, we can relax the dress policy a bit? Yes, it was. Uh-huh. And I never, I personally never did ascribe to that. It was, uh, I think it was the one democratic thing that I allowed to happen. But uh, I consistently dressed up because as the head of the of the operation, people always looked to me as being the necess- necessarily the professional presentation. You recently led the Latino Public Radio Consortium uh, to get more Latino voices into public radio news and music at every level, from the newsroom to the boardroom to the airwaves. Uh, But it's still really rare for Latinos to be leaders in public radio. Uh, You're going into the Colorado Latino Hall of Fame tonight, and I want to ask, 
for people in public radio or any industry really trying to incorporate more Latino voices, what's one piece of advice you'd give? The piece of advice that I would probably give is to be uh, very proactive about researching who is in your community and what their likes and dislikes are. So it's again, it's very different to have an acculturated uh, uh, college level uh, college graduate Latino. It's very different from having a recent immigrant. So which of these communities are you trying to attract? And once you've decided which one you're trying to attract, which one will blend in with your your current uh, audience? You know, don't try to make a leap from an English language format to a Spanish language format in the next hour. Uh, try to blend those things together. So incorporation, I think, is probably a very good thing. Well, that's very audience-directed. What about just plain hiring? Hiring? You know, diversifying an office as well, not just who who you're reaching as a business. Well, our policy at KEVO was always the uh, lifesaver policy. All flavors, all colors in everything we do. And so we tried to do that in, uh, again, the, the, uh, the staffing and the audience presentations and the on-air people so that uh, those people would be more integrated into their communities and know what kinds of things appeals to them and would be able to face each other and welcome each other. The lifesaver policy. The lifesaver policy. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Florence Hernandez-Ramos co-founded KUVO, the jazz station in Denver. Tonight, she'll be inducted into the Colorado Latino Hall of Fame And here is one of Flo's favorite tracks. I understand it's La Baraja by Eva Torres. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been 50 years since the U.S. Supreme Court struck down laws that banned interracial marriage. The case was Loving versus Virginia. Today, in 2017, interracial couples can still face disapproval from family or an awkward glance or stare from a stranger. But there's also growing acceptance. The new book, Denver in Color, tells the story of 25 black and white couples, including Brenda and Jeffrey Herrick. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Your entry includes the day you met at a picnic. This was in California. And you say the attraction was instantaneous. Uh, Tell me about that first encounter. Well, uh, for me, it was uh, Brenda's smile which is uh, very loving. Which she's flashing you right now, actually. Yes. Um, you know, I would say not so much that she was black, just that this was a really fantastic person, although she was the only black person at the picnic. And we just had an immediate magnetism, immediately were able to converse with each other and uh, get along quite quickly. And our relationship started quite quickly after that. Brenda, what do you remember about that first encounter? I remember um, having a challenging conversation with a friend of Jeff's at the picnic. Um, He was saying a few things that I thought was a little bit sexist, and I called him out on it. (laughs) This this was not Jeff. This was a friend at the picnic. 
Yes. Okay. And we actually became really good friends. Um, but anyways, I think Jeff was really proud of me. <laughs> ah, I <laughs> and see. And we connected immediately after that because everybody else was sort of um, pandering to these comments that he was making that were inappropriate. I see. So Brenda showed you early on who she was, and you liked that, Jeffrey. Yes. One topic that your entry in this book, Denver in Color, addresses is uh, whether you find yourself attracted more to a particular race than another. It seems like touchy territory potentially here. But how, how do you answer that question, which is such a theme in this book? Brenda? Um, so that is a theme in the book. Um, one thing, um, I'm pretty flexible. And I tend to be attracted to um, the energy that people have, not so much their race. So um, if there's something interesting to me about anybody in any race, I tend to gravitate towards that. And the race thing is secondary. What would you say, Jeffrey? Yeah, um, I'm a little bit different than that. I appreciate everyone, but um, the opposite attracts concept was strong with me. And uh, uh, black uh, women are just extremely gorgeous to me. <laughs> and I just can't uh, help but... Uh, see who that is, uh, maybe first, before the other people in the room. Have, have you given thought to whether our attraction, if, they, if an attraction exists for another race, if you think that's like biological or more culturally sculpted, like we're, we're maybe taught by our environment to be attracted to something over another, uh, someone over another. What do you think, Brenda? I think there is a potential that it could be um, biological. Um, I don't have any data to support that, but I think diluting things is sometimes helpful, um, as well as sometimes not diluting is preservative. So um, it's hard for me because, like I said, I'm very, I'm just attracted to people for different reasons. It's never because they're pretty or they're this race or it's always something else. Um, deeper first and then I appreciate the other things after. Jeffrey, have you given thought to that for yourself, where you think attraction comes from? I realize that's an awfully big question. Yeah. You know, sometimes I think I see couples that look like they could be brother and sister. And I'm like, why would you be attracted to somebody who looks like you? Uh -huh. And so, you know, maybe uh, uh, being willing to be a little bit more out of your comfort zone might bring you in touch with different looking people. Um, but, you know, I don't want to judge uh, people love each other for uh, reasons that aren't readily uh, visible. No, speak to speak for yourself and not for others in this regard. You've had a range of reactions from people uh, to your interracial relationship. Your family, I understand, is quite supportive. Were you nervous sure. at first about the meeting of the family? No, no. We maybe are unique in that way. Both her family and my family, uh, total one hundred percent acceptance. Uh, so we didn't go through that, which m racial couples, interracial couples often do. Oh, so you, yeah. you feel exceptional in that way. Go ahead, Brenda. Yeah, um, yeah we do. So um, the uphill battles that we have are outside of our family. And I realize some people have difficult situations with their family. That's got to be really crazy and hard. What are your uphill battles? When are you most aware 
uh, that you are an interracial couple, which I, I imagine occurs to you only because of, uh, of sort of outside observations and, and not necessarily your own. That is very true. So um, when Jeff and I are at home, it it's not um, cognizant to me that he's white or that I'm black. But when we leave the house and go into the community or into the world, um, the feedback is, you know, it jars us into, oh, we're in a mixed couple situation. What is that feedback? Um, so it's not always bad. Um, it's just um, people are surprised or they're not ready for it. Or if I'm introducing Jeff to somebody that I know that has never met him, uh-huh. and then, you know, I can see the surprise, like... I might have cued them if it was if I was conscious of him being white all the time. I would say, just so you know, Jeff is white. <laughs> you, you sort of feel like you have to prepare people for this fact right. somehow. How, how would you answer that, Jeff? Well, uh, when I first started being with Brenda all the time, uh, racism was a concept in my head. But when I was with her in a couple, it became glaring to me. And in the beginning, we've been together 25 years. In the beginning, you know, people would stare. People would not give you good treatment at a restaurant. Um, we had other um, subtle and not so subtle expressions of racism. And I, I, would, I would get angry and I would, I would confront and um, be upset about how we were being treated. Uh, that was a shock for me. Huh. Uh, and, uh, and it made me realize uh, how... It must be to, to, to be black all the time uh, challenge. So that's interesting. Being in an interracial couple gave you more insight into how it might be to walk in the shoes of someone of color. Exactly. What do you think of that when you hear that, Brenda? Um, I understand. And I think that um, that was difficult for Jeff um, since I've always been black um, it wasn't difficult for me. Um, In other words, that that kind of casual racism or something that's more blatant, not being served well at a restaurant, that's something that you had encountered before. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it was taking perhaps a slightly different form with the interracial relationship. Well, I, I want to bring in... Uh, one of the the folks who's instrumental in this uh, new book, Denver in Color, and that's photographer Jonathan Kastner. Uh, these are portraits of black and white couples in in Denver. And uh, welcome to the program. Thank you How for being you? with us. I'm good. I'm good. You know what strikes me about about these images, and this is true of of Brenda and Jeffrey, is how um, comfortable the couples are. They're in an embrace often. They're smiling. Uh, it doesn't feel forced or cheesy, you know, which I think it could probably quickly become. How did you get couples to be at ease in front of your camera? Well, emotional authenticity is, is critical for anything like this, and that's how I work. Um, the majority of people that I photograph professionally are not used to being photographed in a sense that their their livelihood is not dependent upon their image maintenance. You know, they don't have handlers and they don't practice their signature moves and that sort of thing. I photograph largely normal people. And the only way that you can do that is to build some kind of a rapport with them so that they can allow themselves to be emotionally vulnerable. How do you you do that? 
Well, I like to think I'm a nice guy, but mostly it's that I let them know from the get-go that I find them very important and everything about them is um, not only accepted but beautiful in, in many ways and that I am more interested in who they are than what they are. And the method that I set up with the book was we would show up to the person's home. Hello, how are you? And then I start moving on all my gear, setting up for a video interview and also for the portrait. And we do the video interview first. So we end up getting to know each other a little bit. How you doing? I'm setting up all the gear. Then we go through the interview talking about who they are and their experience and all of that. And after a half an hour, 45 minutes of them talking about the ups and downs, trials, tribulations, we're all kind of family at that point. Uh-huh. And then when you go to the portrait, we just take it to the next level and we focus on, on moments and then they just come out. What's interesting is that the book is called Denver in Color, but they're black and white portraits. Why did you choose black and white? I mean, I suppose well, maybe, maybe that's really obvious even inherent in the question. Well, but. To, to a large extent, um, it, it was to simplify things that uh, there's a lot of visual clutter in our lives. And by removing the color and making it just a matter of tones, artistically, when that happens, you focus more upon the forms than the color. And since people wear a lot of bright colors, it's easy to see colors and not necessarily see the color of, say, their eyes. But when you bring it down to a monochrome, you see more of the the shapes, the faces, the expressions than being distracted by anything else. So one theme I get just in the last few seconds we have here in this book is that Denver is relatively a supportive place for interracial couples. Very quickly, would you say that's true, Jeff? Yes, and I'd say that's why we moved here. Ah, Brenda, what would you say? I would say yes, and um, one of the good things about moving here is for our children. Um, They are actually mirrored in our community. Thanks to all of you for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Brenda and Jeffrey Herrick live in Denver, and they're in the new book, Denver in Color, about black and white couples here. The author is Jason Davis, with photography by Jonathan Kastner, whom we heard from. You can read an excerpt and see photos at CPR.org. CPR News is collecting stories of discrimination in Colorado, trying to understand the challenges people here face. This is alongside NPR's national reporting project called You, Me, and Them, Experiencing Discrimination in America. Share your story at CPR.org. Click Connect. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News.